Good morning. Good to see you, church family, friends, guests. Glad we could be together and uh, get into God's Word together. If you have a Bible with you and you want to open it up, we're going to be at the first part of Revelation chapter 2. Easy to find, last book of the Bible, second chapter. If you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, you should see one in the rack in front of you or around you somewhere, and we would love to have you take that and make it your own if you don't have one of your own. Everybody, we want everybody to have a Bible and be reading their Bibles. So we've begun a new series. It's called Underestimated What Jesus Thinks of His Churches. In these first few chapters of Revelation, specifically chapters 2 and 3, we have seven messages addressed to seven specific churches that existed at the time this book was written. And you might think that's kind of weird, uh, kind of like, aren't we reading someone else's mail when we do this? Because if these, if these seven messages were addressed to seven churches like 2,000 years ago, what can that possibly have to do with us? Well, it turns out quite a bit, actually. Uh, something Jesus says, something the Lord says at the end of each message goes like this. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural, all of them. So, he intends that anybody who wants to listen, anyone who, who has a heart to want to know what he would say to his people and, and what, what they ought to do and, and how they ought to live and so on, anybody who's got an ear to hear um, should listen, should pay attention. So really what he says to these churches, he's saying to all of his churches, when, whenever in history they exist, wherever they exist, he wants us all to listen. And you know, that makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Because all churches have a lot in common. I mean, we're talking churches, churches that, you know, are, are genuinely teaching the gospel. Churches, uh, groups of people that band together to, to uh follow the Lord's leading and to accomplish his purposes, whatever their differences, and churches have lots of differences, but whatever their differences, they have a lot in common. And one thing they have in common, uh, which is where we get the title of the series, is they tend to be underestimated. Churches are under, underestimated by the world, for sure. The world can't really conceive of anything more irrelevant or crazy you guys, you know, you guys look really foolish right now. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be insulting, but you, know, you think of all the other things you could be doing right now on a beautiful day like this. I mean, yard work would be better than this. That's how the, the world thinks about things. Um, so the world definitely underestimates church, but you know what? Sometimes we, even who belong to churches, underestimate them. We, we, tend, we tend to think less of church than Jesus does. We tend to underestimate their value, their significance, their, their potential to make a difference for good in people's lives. 
And that's especially true if we kind of lose sight of what church is supposed to be and we make it, you know, an event, we make it a building uh, or something, instead of this, this family of believers that Jesus calls together to do his work. It's easy to underestimate church. And then another thing that all churches have in common is that every church has problems. That's because every church has people just like us. We're imperfect. Churches have problems because people have problems. It's just the way it works because churches are people. So the details, the details may be different. And we'll see that as we're reading through these messages. The details may be different from church to church. But the reality is the same kinds of issues tend to come up again and again and again. And so as we read these messages, we might read them and think, wow, boy, that's, that's a lot like me. Or that's a lot like us. That sounds a lot like us. Or we might read it and say, you know, it doesn't really sound like us, at least not right now. But that could easily be us if we're not careful. So Jesus has, I believe, important things to say to us in these messages if we will have ears to hear. And so we need to pray that God will give us that. So, in fact, I'm going to invite you to do that with me right now. Can we bow and let's just pray and let's ask God to give each one of us ears to hear. Father, you have spoken so graciously and and you mean for your truth to just make a difference and to change us and to, to make us the people you want us to be. Father, will you give us ears to hear? I know I can be so stubborn. I can be so... Uh, just not paying attention, really, not getting what you're saying. But Lord, I'm just praying for me and for everybody in this room. Lord, open our ears, open our hearts to what you want to say to each one of us today. Will you please do that? By your Spirit, speak to us, Lord, and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at the first message to the first of the seven churches. Let's discover what the Lord of the churches wants to say to us. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, there's a note sheet in your folder. If you want to take some notes, and the words should be on the screen. But again, I invite you to follow along in your Bible if if you would like. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Let me just pause right there and take a second. What To the angel of the church. Okay, some of your Bibles may translate uh, the word angel messenger, and that's totally legitimate because that's really what the word means. Uh, Sometimes when the Bible talks of angels, it means heavenly supernatural messengers, or it can refer to actual human messengers. Which is it here? Frankly, nobody knows. Nobody's quite sure who the messenger of the church in Ephesus, and actually all the seven messages are addressed to the messenger of that church. And here's the deal. It really doesn't matter that much for us because it's very clear as you read each of the messages, it's intended for the whole church. So the messenger is either an actual messenger taking the message to the whole church or in some way standing for the church, but the message is for the church, the whole church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, 
the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Before we get to the main thing, let me I want to point out a couple of other lessons that we can get here from Jesus, from what Jesus says here to the church in Ephesus. And one thing I think is really important is this. Jesus knows his churches intimately. He knows his churches intimately. He says he's the one who walks among the golden lampstands. And we saw in chapter 1... That the lampstands, this is a book full of symbolism. And symbol, a symbol is something that stands for something else. And in the first chapter, we're told the lampstands stand for the churches. And Jesus is in the midst of them. And what that means is he's with them. He's right there with them. He's, he's among them. And then he says, I know. Those are really powerful words. I know. Every one of these seven messages, Jesus says that same thing. I know. I know your works. I know what you're doing. I know how things are there. I know your successes. I know your failures, I know your struggles, I know your problems, I know you. You are my church. And I am with you, and I know you. I think that's so powerful. I don't know about you, but when I go through a hard time, sometimes I, I find this thought coming to my head just does... Does God really care about what I'm going through? Does, does he know? Does, does, is he aware? And I know, I mean, there's the part of my brain that says, well, of course, you know, God knows everything. But then there's the kind of knowledge, that, that the knowing of really caring, of being concerned. And that's what we're seeing here. He's saying that about his churches. I know you. You and I, think about this, you and I never, ever, ever face a situation that Jesus does not know about, that he does not care about. And that just boggles my mind. Especially if you go back to chapter 1 and you realize who this is, who's saying, I know, I'm there, I'm in your midst, and I know all about your situation. This is the Lord 
of the universe. This is, this is the Creator. How can He possibly care about the, the puny little things we're doing? But see, as soon as I think like that, what am I doing? I'm, I'm, this is the title of the series. I'm underestimating, I'm underestimating something that Jesus thinks very, very highly of. I'm thinking less than Jesus does, because Jesus doesn't think like that. He walks among his churches. Think about it, because this is awesome. Jesus is with us right now. He knows. He knows. By His Spirit, He is present. He knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows exactly what you're doing, what you've done. And He cares for every one of us in this room. That's just mind-boggling. One other thing before we get to the main thing. Trusting Jesus will not be easy. It won't be easy. It will be worth it, but it won't be easy. Now, let me explain what I mean. When I'm talking about trusting Jesus, I'm not just talking about that initial point of putting our trust in Him when we first finally understand the gospel and and choose to put our trust in Jesus and, and put our confidence in Him as the one who can forgive our sins and save us and make us right with God and all that. Okay, trusting Jesus always has a beginning. And if you're here today yet and you haven't yet taken that step of putting your trust in Christ, I hope you're feeling completely welcome because everybody in this room who, who trusts Christ now was in your spot at one point. Okay, there's a time that has to come to each one of us where we cross the line, so to speak. Where we go from unbelief to belief, from not trusting Him to trusting Him, from death to life, from darkness to light. The Bible uses all those pictures to describe that initial point of putting our trust in Him. It's a great miracle that God brings about in our lives. But I'm, I'm talking about more than that because trusting in Jesus always has a beginning, But if it's genuine, it doesn't have an end. It keeps going. And it's that trusting Him uh, on an ongoing basis. That's what I'm saying won't be easy. Look at the last line in verse 7. To the one who conquers, or your version may say overcome, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is a marvelous promise. God is promising. He's promised that one day he's going to restore this earth to what it was like before humanity rebelled and was expelled from the garden, from the paradise, and, and the curse was placed on this planet. And in this picture of eating from the tree of life, this pictures this enjoyment of of paradise in the presence of God forever. It's a marvelous promise. But notice who the promise is for. It's for the one who conquers or the one who overcomes. And every message in in these two chapters says the same thing. The promises are for those who overcome. The promises are for those who conquer. Okay, well, just think about that for a minute. When do we use the word overcome? 
We don't overcome easy things. Boy, I I really overcame that delicious dessert I just ate. (laughs) I overcame a good nap. No, we overcome hard things. We overcome adversity. We overcome uh, challenges, obstacles, opposition. We overcome failure. We overcome difficulty. Or if you, if you prefer the word conquer, it's another way to translate it. Conquer. That's a warfare word. You conquer enemies. So think of what this is telling us. The point is that life is full of hard things and spiritual enemies that have to be overcome in order for us to obtain the promise. So if you want following Jesus to be easy and comfortable, that's not what He promised. He promised that following Him will be worth it. He promised that He will always be with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. He promised to give us peace in the midst of hardship. He said that. But the hardships are going to be real. And they can be so hard. Really hard. And we have to conquer. We have to overcome. What does that mean? It means to keep trusting Him even when it's hard. Even when it's hard. Revelation 12. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers. That's talking about our ultimate enemy, Satan. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Look at this. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Okay, they conquer by the blood of the Lamb. That's referring to Jesus' death for us. So notice, we don't conquer, we don't overcome by our achievements, this is the gospel, we don't overcome by our achievements, but by His. What He accomplished through His death for us. What's our job? Our job is to trust Him. That's the word of our testimony. The testimony is we've put our confidence in Christ. Trusting Him no matter what. It's, it's like trusting a lifeguard to rescue you from drowning. How do you conquer drowning? You know, if you're out in the ocean and you know you start going down, you're at the beach, you know, and they got those lifeguard towers and such, and you start you you run out of gas, you're the waves are getting, you know, they're buffeting you around and you can't do it, and so what do you do? You say to the lifeguard, help, save me. Why? Because he's got the skills, he's got the equipment. He's got the equipment to save you, the the ability. You put your trust in his accomplishment, not yours. Okay, well then what happens if things get worse? What happens if things get scarier? The waves get bigger. A storm comes up or something. 
Is that when you say, okay, never mind. It's harder now, so I'll do it myself. That's how to drown, not how to overcome. It doesn't work. If you don't keep trusting the lifeguard, you won't make it. Okay, we'll bring that analogy over into following Jesus. If we say we trust Jesus, but then when things get ugly, when things get hard, when, when doing it His way seems more difficult, if we say, oh, never mind, I'll take it from here. Yeah, I was fine with following your directions when everything was going well, but now that it's not, I'm going to do it my own way. That's not how to overcome. That's not how to overcome. Overcoming is hard, but overcoming is worth it. There's no other way that leads to life. Okay, so those two are free lessons. Now we'll get to the main thing. To get at it, I want you to imagine a married couple that's been married a good long time, say 30 years or so. And when you meet them, we'll call them Fred and Wilma, okay? Um, when you meet them, two things really impress you. Two things really stand out about Fred and Wilma. One is that Fred and Wilma both work really hard. They are very hardworking people. Uh, Fred is one of those do-it-yourself guys, and he's been working on their house, remodeling it for, for several years. He's redone the bathrooms, the kitchen, the siding, the windows. At pretty much every spare moment he has, he's working on the house. Plus, that's in addition to working long hours at a really hard job. So he works really hard, but he never complains. He just works. Wilma works hard, too. She works really hard, man. She keeps that house top-notch, keeps the household. It's very efficient. She keeps the bills and the accounts current. Besides all that, she's got a home-based business that she and Fred started several years ago, and she's, she's working really hard at that. So they both, man, they are hardworking people. That really impresses you. The other thing that impresses you about them is how committed they are to marriage. They are really committed to marriage. They believe strongly in the biblical principles of marriage. They teach classes. They lead seminars on marriage. They're even members of a pro-marriage organization trying to influence public policy for good. Man, they are zealous for the truth about marriage. But the more you get to know Fred and Wilma, the more you start to sense something's not quite right here. Something's wrong. Because though Fred and Wilma do lots of good things, and they do good things for each other, you notice a definite lack of warmth in their relationship. They never smile at each other. They never express any kind of affection for one another. You've never seen them touch or embrace, let alone exchange a kiss or say, I love you. They do good things, and they believe good things. But something's missing, and that something is love. Which means even though their marriage has some good things about it, 
it's really not a good marriage without love. That was the problem with the church at Ephesus. They did lots of good things. They were very hardworking, and they were committed to the truth. They knew how dangerous false teaching was, and they were, man, they were careful not to allow it. They were fiercely loyal to the truth about Jesus. But they had a huge, huge problem. Jesus said, you've abandoned your first love. The love you had at first, you don't have anymore. Now, is that talking about their love for God or their love for one another? I think it's both. I think it's both because you can't really separate the two. The same John who wrote this book of Revelation wrote this, 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Loving God and loving others always go together. So what happened? I mean, this is kind of a head-scratcher. What, what happened? Because we know the church had love at first. That's what he says. You abandoned the love you had at first. You used to have it. How does a church committed to Jesus Christ, the one who said, what did he say the greatest commandment was? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that. He also said this in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. How could followers of Jesus miss that and fail to love? How did that happen? I'm positive they didn't intend to. I'm positive they didn't. I'm confident they didn't have a meeting. And somebody said, you know, this whole love thing this is a pain. This is hard. I, I say, I make a motion. We don't, we don't love anymore. All in favor, say aye. Aye. Pretty sure that didn't happen. What happened? They didn't vote against it. What did what, they do? They neglected it. Neglect. You want to abandon love? You want to kill love? Neglect is how you do it. Why did they do that? Why did they neglect loving? Because they got preoccupied with other things. That's how. They just got too busy, too preoccupied with other stuff. Boy, these guys were big on hard work. They were big on truth. They could spot, they, they could spot a false teacher a mile away. But working hard and being right are not enough. So I just want to say to you, if you're sitting there thinking, hey, I'm good. I work really hard, and I know I'm right. It's not enough. 
Jesus never said, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you are doctrinally accurate. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you do lots of good works. No, he said, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. A church that works hard, does lots of good things, and teaches the Bible accurately but fails to love, has failed. At the most important thing. Now, please hear this. Okay, this is important. This is not talking about love instead of good works. This is not talking about love instead of truth. Okay, there's a lot of that being promoted. No. Because frankly, without truth, it's actually impossible to love. Think about it. What is love? Love, here's my go-to definition. You write it down if you want. Love is a heartfelt pursuit of someone else's best interests. A heartfelt, don't miss that part. A heartfelt pursuit of someone else's best interest. Okay, how do you know what that is? How do you actually know what's in someone else's best interest? You have to know the truth. You have to know what God defines as our best interest. So if we don't know our Bibles, if we don't know truth, then we're not going to really know what's best for people, so we can't really love them. So this is not love instead of truth. This is love as the goal of truth. And that's right out of the Bible. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, The goal, the goal of our instruction, the goal of all our teaching, the goal of all our truth is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Why has God given us truth? Why does He give us truth? He's given us so much. Got a whole Bible full of truth right there. Why? Not to make us smarter. Not merely to make us correct. He gives us truth to make us loving. Genuinely loving. So how big of a problem is this? If we lack love, how big of an issue is it? Well, look again at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Man, he's saying, dear church, dear church, my church, the church I know, if you don't get back to loving the way I want you to love, I'm going to shut you down. Okay, so how do we not do this? How do we not abandon our first love? Jesus tells us right here, remember, repent, do. Remember, repent, do. Remember, repent, do. Let's take those one at a time. Remember. Remember from where you have fallen. 
You guys used to love well, he's saying. You used, to, you used to do it. You used to be more loving than you are now. So remember. Remember. Remember what I've told you. Remember what I've shown you. Remember what love is. Remember what it looks like. Take a refresher course on love. Everybody needs to do this. You know, married couples need to do this periodically. That's why we have things like anniversaries. So we can remember what brought us together and what it's all about. Loving one another. Take time to call that to mind. Karen and I had fun just last week. We were celebrating our 34th. And uh, we just took time to, to go through all the milestones of our marriage together and, and uh, all the ways God has blessed us. And it was great. Take time to remember. But you don't have to be married to do this, to remember what love is. Uh, just call to mind. That's the biblical idea of remember. Call to mind. Think of some you know, close friends who do a really good job of loving one another. Or you think about the kind of love that really good parents have for their kids. Whatever. Or above all, call to mind Jesus. The ultimate source of real love. Look at Him. Look at the true definition of love. 1 John 4, 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God. We didn't take the initiative. He did. He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. A radical, radical concern for the best interests of someone else. Just working hard and doing the right things is not enough. Remember love. Call it to mind. What this tells me is that if we're not intentionally remembering to love, we won't. Because... I, if we just kind of put life in neutral, have you ever done that? You just kind of put yourself in neutral. You're just like, you know, I'm tired of being intentional and everything. I'm just going to pop it neutral here and just coast for a while. If we do that, if I do that, love is not what happens. Selfishness is what happens. So don't put it in neutral. Remember, love. We have to consciously remember it. Repent. Remember, repent, do. Remember, repent, do. Repent. What is that? He says, remember from where you have fallen and repent. Repent means turn around. You're going the wrong way. Turn around. What were they doing wrong? They were getting too preoccupied with other things. They weren't remembering love was the main thing. They were getting preoccupied with other things. You know what? Those other things were good. This is so, man, this is important. This is so easy to do to get preoccupied, to take something that's good. You know, we, we get it. If we're doing something bad, it's like, yeah, that's bad. Repent. This is repent of something good that's become too big. You've taken a good thing and you've made it an ultimate thing, the ultimate thing. Don't do that. So you could make the, the main thing like doing good works. Being busy with good works. Now, doing good works is important. It's very important. But did you know, did you know, you can do good works that are absolutely worthless? This is one of the most shocking verses, I think, in all the Bible. Look at 1 Corinthians 13.3. This is shocking. Paul says, if I give away all that I have, I'm going to take all my possessions and I'm going to put them on Craigslist for free. 
Going to give everything I've got to the poor. See, this is the problem if we define love merely as a commitment or an act of the will. This is an act of the will. This is a huge act of the will. This is a big commitment. I'm going to give everything I've got to the poor. In fact, I'll go you one better. I'll even sacrifice my life for you. If I give my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Say what? Nothing. In other words, that's worthless. It counts for zero without love. I just, I just had a conversation a week ago with uh, a pastor who, who works in one of the poorest neighborhoods we have here in Vancouver. And he was talking about groups that kind of swoop in and do a bunch of good works and then leave. And he says, when they're doing those things, it makes them feel really good about the good works they're doing. They feel really good about it, but it doesn't really make a good difference. It doesn't really help. Because they fail to actually get to know people, and they fail to actually engage at the level of the gospel, of the need to, re, you know, to know God, and live in a relationship with him. And so they don't really help people who some of whom need to make some some difficult changes. And they don't stay engaged cuz that's really hard. That's really hard. It's easy to hand people money. It's easy to give them stuff, but to really engage at the level of the gospel is hard. But isn't that what love does? Doing good works without love tends to make us proud and self-satisfied. Jesus is totally not into that. Or we could make truth the main thing. That's what the Ephesians did. They made sure their church was faithful to the truth. Man, truth, truth, truth. And it's important to be faithful to the truth because there are a lot of lies flying around today. Lots of lies. People believe all kinds of things that aren't true that will ultimately ruin their lives. And see, that's why truth matters. That's why truth matters. It matters because people matter. It matters because God matters. People in relationship with God, in right relationship with God, that's, that's the goal. But when we make truth the ultimate thing instead of the means to the end, we make it the end, we just become proud and critical and angry. So whenever we take anything and make anything other than genuinely loving God and loving people, if we take anything else and make it the main thing, we need to repent. Remember, repent, and do. Do the things you did at first, Jesus says. Now notice, he doesn't say, hey, do more good things. He doesn't say that. He says, do the things you did at first. Do the things you did when you were acting in love. Take loving action. Okay, love has to be done, 1 John three seventeen and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's easy to talk about love. It's a lot harder to put in action 
And we have to make sure our actions are genuinely loving. How do we know if our actions are loving? Well, we have to ask what's really in that person's best interest. What will help meet their real needs? What will help them experience the love and truth of Jesus? That's what we need to do. Remember, repent, and do. May God keep us from ever abandoning our first love. Let's pray. just want to give you a quiet moment as I take a quiet moment to remember, repent, and resolve to do. If, if that's where you are, if you realize it's just really easy to wander away from loving, and if you're here and you haven't yet taken that step of saying yes to Jesus, I would encourage you just talk to him and say, hey, um, help me. Help me know. Help me trust. Father, thank you for your incredible love for us. Uh, thank you for the reminder that you are not simply wanting us to be right. You want us to be loving. And so help us with this, Lord. Help us never forsake the love you want us to experience and to share. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.